For those of you that have been with us, you know that we have been going through a series in 1 Peter. Uh, We are going to take a pause from that series today, and I'm going to back us up a few chapters to one of the Gospels. And the Gospel of John this morning is where we will reside during our time together. And specifically, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is where we are going to land during our time this morning. And if there are any Bible scholars in the house with us this morning, you may know when I say John chapter 2 that that story, that 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 passage starts rather with the story of the wedding ceremony at Cana, or otherwise known as Jesus' first recorded miracle in which he turned water into wine. And knowing that I was going to be preaching this morning on Jesus' first recorded miracle, it had me thinking of some more modern, contemporary, uh, shall we say, miraculous moments. And uh, being the sports fan that I am, of course, I was drawn to consider some of the more amazing sporting moments during my lifetime. And so for any football fans here, you can probably uh, know of the the Hail Mary pass, right? You know what that is. Uh, Rarely does it ever work, but we probably have all seen it work from time to time. Any boxing fans in the house here today? I don't see any hands. There's one over there. Okay, Mike. Um, You may then recall a guy by the name of Buster Douglas. Uh, who actually knocked out Iron Mike Tyson many, many years ago when Iron Mike Tyson was untouchable, the heavyweight champion of the world. Nobody could have ever predicted that, but that happened. But for me, I guess the one moment, the one sporting event, I guess that is the most memorable, amazing, and dare I say miraculous sporting event during my lifetime occurred back in 1980. And I realize that uh, many of you here this morning were not even born back in 1980. And for those of you that were, it was quite a long time ago, so allow me to set the stage for you, if I may. The Winter Olympics that year were being held right here in the United States at uh, Lake Placid, New York, and our American men's ice hockey team was going up against the four-time defending gold medal champion Soviet Union powerhouse ice hockey team. Meanwhile, our our, our men's team was made up of a bunch of kids. I mean, that's what they were, really. They were kids. They were college-age kids that had really not played much hockey together at all. So needless to say... I don't believe there were too many people in the world and maybe not even in that American men's locker room that probably gave the Americans much of a chance to win that hockey game. But if you don't already know how the story ends, you probably can guess at this point, right? At the end of the third period, the Americans amazingly held a 4-3 to lead over the Soviet Union hockey team. And the sportscaster at the time, a gentleman by the name of Al Michaels, he could be heard on the television broadcasts starting a countdown at 10 seconds left in the game. 10, 9, 8, 7. And when Al Michaels got the three seconds left in that hockey game, he asked the television audience this question. He said, do you believe in miracles? And when the clock struck zero and the Americans had held on to defeat the Soviet Union that that year, You could hear Al Michaels on the television broadcast simply exclaim, yes, as the Americans won that game, four to three over the Soviet Union. Now, some forget that that was not the actual gold medal match that year. The Americans had to go on and defeat Finland to win the gold medal, which they did. But by far and away, the most amazing, memorable, and dare I say, miraculous sporting event in my lifetime, I think, occurred back in 1980 when the American hockey team beat the Soviet Union team in what has subsequently become known as the miracle on ice. And so to borrow a phrase from the great sportscaster Al Michaels this morning, church, I ask you the same question here today. Do you believe in miracles? Or perhaps more appropriately within this context this morning, do you believe that our God 
is still in the business of performing miracles today. Well, as I said, our scripture text this morning is taken from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And as is customary in our church, for those who are able, I want to invite you at this time to please rise for the reading of God's word. Again, starting in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, beginning in verse number 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Church, you may be seated. So what can we learn or rather discern from this story that took place some 2,000 years ago? And how might we then apply the truths of scripture to our lives here today? Well, over the next several minutes, church, I'm going to submit to you four things. Four things that I think that we can learn about the character and nature of of our God from this passage, and then I will offer some suggestions at the end on how we might apply those truths of Scripture to our lives here today. Just as we always do, we will walk through the Scriptures verse by verse, and I will endeavor to unpack a few things as we go along together here this morning. So, as we go back, we set the scene at the beginning of our story here. We are presented with a happy couple on their wedding day. A bride and a groom, this story here we see takes place in Cana of Galilee. Now most most of Jesus' teachings and miracles took place in Galilee, a largely Jewish region that was located near an important trade route and thus fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that a light would dawn for Galilee of the Gentiles. And of course here we encounter in our story a bride and a groom, a happy couple on their wedding day. Now interestingly enough, we are not told much information about this happy couple, are we? We don't know their names. We don't know their story. We don't know how they met. Uh, We don't know where they are from, although we could probably presume that they are from Cana of Galilee, as I don't believe that destination weddings were in vogue back during biblical times. And even if they were, I'm not sure Cana of Galilee would top a top 10 list. But we are Informed, we are told something of the guest list here, aren't we? We are told here in the scriptures that Jesus, his mother Mary, and the disciples were invited to the wedding reception. Again, we're not told much information at all. We're not told anything about the relationship between the bride and the groom and Jesus, the disciples, and uh, his mother Mary. But again, we can infer that there must have been a close relationship there between 
the guests and the couple, as we don't typically invite strangers to celebrate one of the happiest days of our lives with us, do we? No, rather we instead invite family and very close friends to celebrate a day like a wedding day with us. In fact, here verse 2 tells us that they were invited to the wedding. And so if you are here this morning and you happen to be a note taker, one of the first things that I think that we can learn from this story in this passage this morning Due to the fact that the God of all creation would take time out of his day to invest in this couple and show up to support them on their day is yet again a reminder to us that our God values relationships and that relationships are critically and vitally important to him. The fact that Christ would take the time to show up at this wedding celebration, I believe, is indicative of Christ's character nature, and mission to invest in people and relationships. Now, some of you may say here this morning, well, Michael, that's a, that's a pretty basic and uh, obvious point. Don't you have something a little more profound to share with us this morning? But before we move on, I don't want us to miss this critically important point here. You see, unlike so many false gods or false religions, both back during Jesus' time and leading up to even our day and age as well, in which a false god, a false religion, oftentimes that type of relationship is transactional. That is to say, you do something or you behave in some sort of way in relation to some false god, religion, or doctrine, and then that false god, religion, or doctrine will then promise you some sort of reward either here or in some fake or false made-up afterlife. You do something and receive something. Unlike that type of transactional relationship, Our God, the one true living God, is not interested in having a transactional relationship with his people, but instead he wants and offers a transformational relationship with each and every one of us here this morning. Even though Jesus' ministry here had not yet begun, Jesus shows that he cares about people and investing in people by showing up to support the bride and groom on their special day. If there is no commitment or investment into the people that we claim to care about in our our lives, then church, we need to really question whether or not we have a heart for people and relationships as well. We see here at the beginning of our text this morning in our story that Jesus shows up just as Mary and his disciples showed up to support the happy couple on their wedding day. Because when invited into our lives, church, Jesus always shows up. Throughout history, we see our God has always been an intimate father who desires to have a close relationship with his people. And whether you are here this morning having been a Christian for decades or whether or not you are here this morning and you question whether or not Jesus really is who he says he is, Christ would like nothing more than for you to invite him into your life just as he was invited to the wedding ceremony here at Cana. He wants to be a part of all of your celebratory days, your wedding ceremonies, your marriages, the birth of children, but also he is there and wants to be involved in all of the difficult moments of life as well and even the tragic moments in our lives. Jesus said to the Laodicean church in Revelation 3.20, he said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. 
Our God is not interested here, church, in a 30-day money-back trial guarantee type of relationship. No, our God offers us something far greater. Our God offers us a lifetime guarantee, a transformational relationship with the creator of the universe that comes with it, the gift and the promise and the guarantee of eternal life. Well, as we continue along in our story and our text this morning, we see that the wedding celebration runs into a bit of an issue, don't they? Houston, we have a problem. (laughs) And what is that problem? Well, of course, they have run out of wine right in the middle of the celebration. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, notice here that Mary, Jesus' mother, does not ask or tell Jesus, her son, to do anything. Now, she does tell the servants to do whatever he, referring to her son, tells him to do. But Mary does not tell or instruct her son to do anything. She simply makes the factual statement, they have no more wine. Now, I don't know about you, but it does pique my curiosity here. I just wonder if maybe, maybe Mary gave Jesus one of those looks that all moms have given to their children from time to time, right? Kids, you know what I'm talking about. You can be over in this corner of the room, maybe goofing off, doing something you're not supposed to be doing, acting inappropriately. Meanwhile, you, mom can be over in this corner of the room, fully engaged in a conversation with two, three, maybe even 10 other people, but out of the corner of her eye, she catches and locks eyes with you. And with that one look, that one stare, you know instantaneously how you are supposed to act or respond. Now, I don't know if that occurred here. The scriptures don't indicate that it did. But regardless, I do just wonder if maybe Mary gave her son Jesus one of those looks. Well, regardless, how does Jesus respond? Verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? She sa- or he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, some of you may say, well, that is a strange or an interesting way to address one's mother or a woman during, uh, in that context. But in fact, during that time, it was not at all uncommon way to address uh, one's, uh, a woman or one's mother. In fact, Jesus goes on to tell her, he says, my, my hour has not yet come. And here, of course, Jesus is most likely referring to his earthly ministry and some scholars believe to the time of his crucifixion and resurrection. Nevertheless, Jesus surveyed the situation, noting the presence of six stone water jars. He immediately directed the servants to fill the jars with water and to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. You see here, Jesus jumped into action to meet a need. And so the second thing, again, if you are taking notes here this morning, that I think that we can learn about the character and the nature of our God this morning is that Jesus who desires to have a transformational relationship with each and every one of us, he also delights in meeting the needs of his people. Let me say that again, church. Jesus delights in meeting the needs of his people. And here we see Jesus jumping into action to meet a need. This too is consistent with who Jesus was throughout his time here on earth. And his heart to meet the needs of his people is evident throughout the New Testament and his earthly ministry. Yes, as we've already discussed this morning and I've shared with this morning, Jesus desires to have a transformational relationship with each and every one of us here this morning. But not only does he come to offer that type of a relationship, he also comes to offer help and hope. 
we find that throughout Jesus' ministry, whether he is meeting the physical needs, that is the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the sick, or as in this case, coming to turn water into wine, as his ministry attests, his, he's come first and foremost to meet the spiritual needs for all who would call on the name of the Lord. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And then David when he was being pursued by Saul in 2 Samuel verse 22, or I'm sorry, chapter 22, verse 7, said these words. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God from his temple. He heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. Well, a little over 15 and a half years ago, my wife and I were in what I would describe, only describe as an extreme case of distress. We had just given birth to our second son via C-section. I say we, my wife did all of the work. <laughs> and if you've ever had a C-section or if your wife has ever had a C-section, you know you are in the hospital for a few extra days. I still remember that. It was a springtime baby and my, we had my parents in town and my wife's parents in town. We enjoyed Boston Market takeout for Mother's Day that Sunday, that year in 2007 in the hospital together. A day or two later, we took our son home. And uh, as I was preparing to go back to work the next day by ironing a shirt in the basement of the home that we lived in, in a town just north of Baltimore, Maryland, I heard a shrill from my mother-in-law at the top of the steps. So I, of course, ran to the top of the steps, only to find my mother-in-law holding my newborn son in her arms. But my son had turned a pasty gray tone, seemingly lifeless and not breathing. So we called 911. About 10 days or almost two weeks later, in the NICU, we were told by the physicians and the doctors that our son had suffered a stroke that affected approximately 50% of his brain. Was he going to live or would he die? No promises from the physicians. If he did live, was he going to be able to walk, talk, think, speak? Would he have any chance whatsoever at having a quote-unquote normal life? No promises from the doctors. So we fell to our knees and prayed and prayed and prayed, surrounded by family, surrounded by a great church who also loved on us and prayed with us. I'm happy to report today that that 15 and a half year old son of ours, Lord willing, is going to walk out of here after the second service with me and head home. Full of energy, a fine young man, an excellent student who loves mountain biking, basketball, and to this day, still needling his older brother and wrestling in mom and dad's living room, even though he's been told a thousand times to please stop wrestling in our living room. Our God delights in meeting the needs of his people just as he showed up to meet our need when he saved and preserved the life of our son. And just as he did here when he showed up to meet a need by turning water into wine at the wedding ceremony at Cana. Well, we need to move along in our story, in our passage this morning. And as we do so, we then see a response or a reaction to Jesus' prompt intervention, don't we? Take a look with me again, if you will, at verses 9 through 10 
and see how the master of the banquet responded to Jesus meeting a need. Verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The master of the banquet here is clearly surprised when although he did not realize where the wine had come from, he noted that the water that Jesus had just turned into wine was better. It was better than what had been initially served at the banquet. And that was certainly not the norm and for sure was an unexpected and pleasant surprise both to the master of the ceremonies and presumably to all of those who were also attending the banquet feast. And so the third thing, church, that I think that we can learn about the character and nature of our God from this passage in this story is that when Jesus shows up to meet the needs of his people, he will often do so in unexpected and yes, even in some cases, miraculous ways. Let me say that again. When Jesus shows up to meet a need, he will often do so, yes, in unexpected and sometimes and in some cases in miraculous ways. For anyone here this morning that may question God's nature or ability to show up in unexpected and miraculous ways, we only need look at the entire body of the scriptures for supporting evidence and stories that uh, support this claim. After all, who could have predicted that God would show up in the following unexpected and miraculous ways? Let's go back to the beginning of the scriptures. What about God allowing a 90-year-old woman, Sarah, to become pregnant with Isaac and in so doing, God, fulfilling God's promise to make Abraham the father of many nations? Or what about God using a reluctant Moses who by his own admission most likely had some challenges with his speech and communication. To meet God at Mount Sinai, to receive the Ten Commandments, this after take, helping to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt. And God uses this man, this man to communicate God's plan for all the Israelites? Or what about the remarkable story of Esther an orphaned Jewish girl, God-fearing, living in a pagan court, chosen to be queen, and as queen, she finds out that Jews are to be executed by Haman. And so she fasted and prayed for three days and then risked her own life by approaching the king to request a new edict. And in so doing, she played a primary role in helping to save the Jewish people. And perhaps in the most unexpected and miraculous story of all time, what about the story of our God sending his one and only son into the world, born in a manger, not in a hospital, but born in a cold, dreary manger. This young infant would grow up to be a boy and then grow up to be a man, tempted in every way that you and I have been tempted, yet was found to be without sin, and yet still convicted to suffer the brutal death, death on a cross. But on day three, we all know the story. The cross could not keep him. He rose from the dead, paving the way for us, his people, 
to receive salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. You want to talk about showing up in unexpected and miraculous ways. Who could have ever predicted that that was going to be the way that God was going to offer salvation to his people? Well, again, one of the ways God showed up for my family in an unexpected and miraculous way, this time occurred with the birth of our first child. My wife and I were, I think what we referred to, or what they referred to as dinks, double income, no kids, living in Baltimore City at the time after we got married. And of course, we knew we wanted to have children and because uh, we talked about it before marriage. And we tried and tried and tried to have children. But through infertility, a miscarriage, and years and years of praying, we began to wonder whether or not God was going to answer or hear our cry in prayer to have a family. But as God oftentimes does, his plans for our lives are always so much greater than anything that we could concoct or imagine for our lives. And that is when God opened our hearts to the wonderful, amazing world of adoption. And I don't have the time here this morning to share with you all the ways in which God miraculously worked in people's lives all up and down the East Coast to allow us to adopt our first son on day number two from his life from a hospital in Sarasota, Florida. But suffice it to say, that our 17 and a half year old son continues to be a blessing to all of us in our family beyond anything that we could ever ask or imagine. God still is in the business of showing up to perform miracles in the lives of his people, still showing up in unexpected ways today, just as he blessed my wife and I with the birth of our first child and just as he showed up again here at the wedding ceremony at Cana. Well, as we turn the corner so to speak, to head towards the finish line of our time here together this morning. I do think there is one critically important question that we all need to be asking ourselves in light of what I've just shared with us so far here this morning. And that question is, why? Why does our God desire to have a transformational relationship with each and every one of us here in this place today? Why does he show up desiring to meet the needs of his people, delighting to meet the needs of his people. And why does he show up sometimes, yes, in unexpected and miraculous ways to meet those needs? Why? Why, church? Why is that the character and the nature of our God? For a possible answer to that question, I will direct you back to the scriptures one final time this morning in verse Number 11, verse number 11 says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Church, the answer to that why question is really quite simple, and it's right there in front of us in black and white. The reason that our God desires to have a transformational relationship with each and every one of us, the reason that our God delights in meeting the needs of his people, oftentimes showing up in unexpected and miraculous ways, and the fourth and final thing that I think that we can learn about the character and nature of our God here this morning is that God, Jesus, does all of these things to reveal his glory so that others might then be given the opportunity to put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ. His primary purpose and goal throughout his ministry here on earth was to reveal his glory so that others might then see his glory through his people and then be given the opportunity to also put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ. 
In verse 11 here, we see God revealed his glory, which resulted in the disciples believing in him. Friends, glorifying and praising God is our charge as well. Whatever God has done for you, however he has worked in your life, we participate in the call of the Great Commission when we simply give him the glory and share the story of what he has done in our lives. Someone here today needs to hear your testimony, friends, because your story, your testimony is a way in which God can reveal his glory in the hopes that others might then see and believe in the one true living God. Well, whenever I study God's word, whether it is in a group setting like today or whenever I am doing my own quiet times, I tend to ask myself a couple of other questions as well. Three questions specifically. What does it say? What does it mean? And what am I going to do about it? What does it say? What does it mean? And what am I going to do about it? And so as we wrap up our time here this morning, I will endeavor to answer that last question, the what am I going to do about it, otherwise known as application. So here goes. As I mentioned this morning, God desires to have a transformational relationship with each and every one of us here this morning. And I know there are two groups of people here this morning. There are those of you that have had a relationship with Christ, and there are those of you here undoubtedly that have yet to experience a transformational relationship with our God. Let me first speak to those of you that have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you have a relationship with Christ for any length of time whatsoever, I just simply encourage you and implore you to continue to invest in that relationship daily. Just as a garden needs to be watered regularly, we too need to be investing in our relationship with our Heavenly Father through prayer time, worship experiences like this, time in God's Word, fellowship with other believers. If you are here today, and you have a relationship with Christ, but you perhaps feel as though that relationship has grown a bit stale, I simply encourage you to draw near to God and then allow God to draw near to you. If you are here today, however, and you have never experienced the joy of a transformational relationship with our God, I encourage you, friends, to make today a day of decision. Do not leave here today without speaking to an elder, a deacon, a member of the church on what it means to have a transformational relationship with the God who created you. Our God wants to be invited into your life just as he was invited to the wedding ceremony at Cana. And as I've already said, or rather as Jesus has already said, he stands at the door and knocks. Church, would you consider letting him in today. Number two, if you are here today and you have a need, I simply encourage you to call out to God. Submit all of your prayer requests to the one who delights in meeting the needs of his people because our God wants to hear from us. He wants to hear all of your needs and your prayer requests. Now, I do feel a need here to pause just for a moment to clarify what I am not saying here this morning. So please don't anyone come out or leave here today feeling as though Michael said, well, hey, all I need to do is submit a miraculous prayer request, click my heels three times, and expect that God will answer my prayer request in the time and in the way that I requested. We know that that is not how our God operates, church, don't we? We cannot treat our relationship with God as though he is our heavenly ATM machine in which we pull up to the kiosk 
punch in our four-digit prayer code and expect God then to answer or respond to our prayer in the way and in the timing that we asked him to. That is not how our God works. And that type of thinking borders on a health and wealth gospel theology, which is no gospel at all and one that we absolutely do not subscribe to here at Redeemer Bible Church. But I do encourage you, if you have a need, submit all of your prayer requests to the one who delights in meeting the needs of his people because he hears the prayers of his people. But I also understand that some of you are here today are going to say, well, Michael, um, you know, that's great. That's great. You know, I, uh, your story that you shared about your two sons, you know, God heard your prayer. He answered your prayer. He has not done that for me, however. Maybe there are some of you here today that feel disappointed by the outcomes. You have prayed and prayed and prayed, and yet you feel that God has been silent. Perhaps you feel God has abandoned you. Perhaps you feel as though God has disappointed you, or you have feeling that you are outright rejected by God. For those of you that are here this morning that can relate, God is aware. God is aware of your disappointment and grief. Grief is real. You don't need me to tell you that. The Bible is unflinchingly realistic about grief. We see that all throughout the scriptures. There are over 200 laments, many found in the book of Psalms throughout God's word. As a previous friend and pastor's wife, Maria Garrett writes in her book entitled Stronger Together, A Gospel Lens on Unity. She says the following, quote, lament helps us process pain and suffering and cry out to God. Rather than deny or repress, we face suffering and turn to the one who has the power to help or sustain us. Grieving before God, like true repentance, brings healing. Although I cannot guarantee that God will respond to your prayers in the time and the way in which you asked or requested, I can remind you of the encouraging words found in Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7, which says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In the book simply entitled Prayer by John Onwachekwa, I believe I got his name right there. <laughs> he says, quote, sometimes in the life of a church, unanswered prayers are just as helpful as answered ones. They remind us that we aren't imposing our will on God. He's in control. We're making our requests, but they're just that, requests and not demands. He has a better view of things than we do. So we thank him in hindsight for every prayer answered or left unanswered. Prayer is leaving the direction of our lives in God's hands. Third and finally this morning, church, when God shows up, perhaps in an unexpected and miraculous way to meet your need. Let us then simply be found faithful to share the story of how God worked in our lives so that others might be given the opportunity to see his glory and put their faith, hope, and trust in him. 
For those of you here this morning that might say, you know what, I don't know the scriptures well enough to advocate for Christ. I don't know that I could be a good an apologist for Jesus Christ. We are simply called, church, to be faithful in sharing our story, what God has done in our lives, and then we let the results up to God as he performs the regenerative work in the lives of those around us. So back to our friend, Al Michaels. Do you believe in miracles? I shared some ways that God unexpectedly and miraculously worked in my family's life here this morning, but the truth of the matter is is that God has done that for so many other people right here at Redeemer Bible Church. From other adoption foster care stories to miraculous healings following a scary diagnosis to restored relationships. Church, our God still is in the business of performing miracles today. I hope that today's message has encouraged you to pursue a transformational relationship with Jesus Christ, to submit all of your prayer requests to the one who delights in meeting the needs of his people And when he does show up in those unexpected and miraculous ways, church, may we then give him all glory and praise so that others, so that others might also see and believe in the one true miracle-working God. Friends, would you pray with me? Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your provision in our lives, and we thank you that you are a God who desires to have a transformational relationship with each and every one of us in this house this morning, God. We thank you that you delight in meeting the needs of your people, and we thank you, yes, that you still are in the business of showing up in unexpected and miraculous ways, just as you showed up at the wedding ceremony in Cana when you turned water into wine. God, I pray that you would now leave us strengthened, renewed, and rested from our time here worshiping you today, God. Send us forth this week as many of us re-engage from a time of, of thanksgiving into the world. Help us to be salt and light this week in the world. And may we give you all glory, honor, and praise. It is in Jesus' name that I pray all these things. Amen.